Good morning. We live um, in a day and age where we are surrounded by lots of signs and symbols. And all of these signs and symbols have various meanings and purposes. In fact, we live in a day and age when millions and millions of dollars are spent developing those signs and symbols. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, maybe this one strikes a bell. Anybody know what this is a symbol for? Nike. What are Nikes? What are Nikes? Shoes. There we go. How about this one? What, what is this uh, symbol for, this silhouette? That is a, it's a Coke. What is a Coke? What is it? It's a soda pop, right? It's the black fizzy liquid inside the bottle, right? The Nikes are the shoes and the Coke is the drink. These signs and these symbols point to something and they become this shorthand that has meaning and advertisers spend a lot of time developing them and a lot of money putting them in front of you. This iconography of our consumer culture to remind you of things, your experiences and associations with it. And this morning we're going to talk a little bit about signs and what do signs mean in our spiritual lives. For example, what's a miracle? This is the Rembrandt painting. I realize it's a little bright in here. You can't really see it. This is Rembrandt painting. That's Jesus holding up his hand dramatically and Lazarus rising out of the tomb. Now, literally, this painting is a symbol depicting this event, and he's picked various reasons why he's doing everything that has a layer of meaning on top of it. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the original miracle that Jesus did. What is that a sign for? And what is that a symbol for? And what does that point to? And what is the meaning and significance of it? Have you ever thought about that? Why did Jesus go around performing these miracles? Other than to eliminate the, the suffering of those that he did, we have recorded miracles in the 20-ish range in there in the, the Gospels. We assume that he did more miracles than this, but he clearly didn't heal every disease of every person on earth at that time. So why did he do those, and why did he do just those? What are those a sign that points towards? Our passage this morning is in Matthew 12. If you have your Bible or Bible app and want to open it and follow along with us, we're starting in verse 38. I'm just going to read through it. We're going to talk about three things today. We're actually going to talk about two people who lived and one sort of spiritual entity. And then we're going to draw some conclusions out of this that I believe that Jesus is saying something to this generation, but he's also saying something to us as well. Matthew 12, verse 38. One day some teachers of religious law and Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to show us a miraculous sign to prove your authority. But Jesus replied, Only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. A couple things about this. The religious law and Pharisees, we've been seeing this over and over and over again. And what has Jesus been doing in the past few chapters that we're reading? 
So since the Sermon on the Mount, where he laid out a different way of thinking about the law and the prophets, everyone said, we've never heard someone teach with such authority. No one has ever taught with this level of authority. And then he moved into a time when he began to demonstrate that he had the authority to teach this way. He began to demonstrate his authority over creation, over the demonic realm, over sickness and disease, and even death itself. He demonstrated authority in every realm. And now we have moved into a time where that authority is being challenged, where he has the teachers, the religious establishment of the day, the people who are charged with protecting this law and prophets that he in the Sermon on the Mount dismantled and reassembled in a very different way. They're challenging his authority. How do you get to do this? How do you get to do this? How do you get to do this? And they're challenging him here now on saying, we want to see a sign. Well, you might say, have you not been paying attention? He's been doing a lot of signs that prove he had the authority. And many of the scholars and commentators say here that they believe what they're talking about is a sign on the order of Moses. A sign on the order of Elijah. And it is not uncommon for God to, uh, to pr- produce signs through his prophets to demonstrate certain things. Remember when Moses first got called and he said, how are they going to believe that you're out, you're in a burning bush, I'm miles away, it's been decades since I've been in Egypt, and I'm just going to show up and tell me this God in a burning bush told me? And he said, take your staff and throw it down. And it would turn into a snake, right? We would demonstrate these things, demonstration through the plague. Same thing we see in Kings with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And him telling the prophets of Baal, tell them to call down, tell your gods to call down and consume this um, sacrifice placed on the altar. And then when Elijah prayed, the fire came down and consumed it. And the scriptures say that he did this to demonstrate. In fact, Elijah prayed to say, prove to them that you are the one true God, and you, the God that I talk about, is the one who is the God of all gods and has all authority. These signs and demonstrations were things that proved this. And so they're saying, hey, we've seen your demonic deliverance, but we actually think you're doing that through Beelzebub. We think you're, that you're actually in league with the devil here. We need to see a sign on this order, something in the heavens, something that is even more dramatic that becomes an evidence. And he says an adulterous and wicked generation won't get that. Now, he doesn't mean all of them are being unfaithful in their marriage. He means that this generation is not being faithful to their God, literally not recognizing the Son of God when he shows up on the scenes. He is saying, you are unfaithful spiritually, and I will not give you a sign other than the sign of Jonah. Now, Matthew adds this in here, and there is a lot of debate over when this got added in. Luke doesn't actually talk about the specific sign of Jonah being buried for three days, and the commentators go into the Greek at great detail about the three days and three nights. So just know, very smart people are wrestling over this, because if you do the math, Easter, the Good Friday, Saturday, Sunday, there's not three days and three nights, and so there's all conjecture on that. I am not going to go into that detail. But if you're reading it as a student of the Bible, there is plenty for you to dig into that explains all of those pieces. Luke actually doesn't draw the conclusion. Luke, his account of it just says, you are a wicked and adulterous generation. I will not give you any explanation or sign other than the sign of Jonah, full stop, period, and he leaves it there. 
And I actually like that. I like that he leaves because I think Jonah is a sign to us in many ways. Yes, the belly of the whale and being in the belly of the earth is one, but I think there are many signs in the life of Jonah, and we'll look at that in just a minute. Then he goes on to say, The people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it, for they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. The queen of Sheba, I'll tell you who she is in just a minute, will also stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it. For she came from a distant land to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now someone greater than Solomon is here, but you refuse to listen. If you'll notice, there's great parallelism in those two passages. He's basically saying, Nineveh repented, they are going to stand up and judge you because someone greater than Jonah is among you. The queen of Sheba came from a great distance to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She will stand up on judgment day and judge you because someone greater than Solomon is actually here. You should not miss the fact that Jesus says twice that there will be a judgment day. It's a sermon for another day, but that is an important point to recognize in this passage. When an evil spirit leaves a person, it goes into the desert seeking rest but finding one. Then it says, I will return to the person I came from. So it returns and finds its former home empty, swept, and in order. Then the spirit finds seven other spirits more evil than himself, and they all enter into the person and live there. And so that person is worse off than before. That will be the experience of this evil generation. Whew. That one's a lot, right? There's a lot going on in there. Jonah, Sheba, and unclean spirits. What is Jesus trying to say here to these group that are gathered around the Pharisees at this moment? Let's unpack this a little. First, let's talk about Jonah. First, let's click to the next slide. There we go. It's not right. There we go. I like the painting. There's occasionally children in here, and the, P- and the painting was PG-13. It's a little bit more of Jonah's backside than we all intended or needed to see. You're welcome. Hey, Jonah, everybody knows the story of Jonah, right? And this is the part of the story that we know. And this is the part of the story that tends to get argued a bunch, right? Because modern people don't want to believe that a fish could swallow somebody up. And how does this actually happen? And what happens when we enter into that argument on this story is we miss the entire point of the whole book of Jonah. So Jonah was a prophet. He was a northern prophet. That would make him kind of unpopular in the book right off the bat. The northern kingdom of of Israel fell first. The northern kingdom basically didn't have any good kings ever. They never followed. And the southern kingdoms always felt like they were the one. They were the one that were descendants of David. So he wouldn't be very popular right off the bat. And the word of the Lord comes to him and says, you're to go to Nineveh. Now, we know Nineveh from this story, but Nineveh is actually extremely significant because it is the capital of the kingdom of Assyria. And Assyria is the kingdom that is literally going to come in and wipe out the northern kingdom. In fact, it had tried to do it multiple times. One very famous time was when Hezekiah was king. And Sennacherib, who was the king of Assyria, comes and is arrogant and starts railing against Israel and railing against uh, um, Um, Hezekiah and saying he's going to decimate the city and Hezekiah 
gets out the law and he calls for prayer and fasting. And the Lord sends Isaiah to him to say, Sennacherib is not going to defeat you here. That is not going to happen. And so um, the Lord actually sends out an army and like 100, almost 200,000 Assyrians die and Sennacherib retreats and the Lord uh, uh, saves him. And it says Sennacherib retreats to his home in Nineveh. So this is a town that an Israelite would not like and would not like to have been called to, especially called to say, to to go and call a message of repentance and judgment. Now the judgment and the calling down fire and brimstone probably would have liked that. And that was Jonah's heart when he heard this. At first he thought, oh, maybe I get to go call down judgment on them. And then he remembered who this God was. And it says later on in the verses, it says, Lord, the reason why I didn't want to go is because I knew you were patient I knew you were merciful, and I knew you would forgive them, and they would repent, and that is not what I wanted for these people. So he gets in a boat and heads the opposite direction. Now, it's a big deal for Israelites to get into a boat because they are not boat people. They'll fish in a lake, but these are not ocean-going people. You tended to have landlubbers, and you had ocean-going people. So for him to get in a boat is him saying, Hey, Lord, not just no, but no, I'm not going. To Nineveh. I'm going to Tarshish in the opposite direction here. And the Lord causes this storm, and the men cast lots, right? They're basically flipping coins, and the coin points out him. And Jonah's like, All right, that's me. You got to throw me over. And a fish swallows him up and spits him out on dry land. And the word of the Lord comes to him again and says, I want you to go to Nineveh. And so he goes to Nineveh and stands in the middle of this town, and he basically says, the judgment of the Lord is coming unless you repent, and the Ninevites repent. And he is unhappy about this. In fact, he's just not actually, he actually doesn't even stay around to watch the repentance. He actually goes out and sits up at a high place over the city so that he can have a really good perspective when God starts raining down the fire and brimstone, so he can watch this happen. And it doesn't happen. And the Lord gives him, and it's hot up there, and the Lord gives him this shade tree to come over him. And he sits in the shade and watches and waits for the judgment of the Lord. But what, what is happening is the repentance of God is happening in this foreign city. And then the Lord sends a worm, and it actually eats the tree that is the shade over him. And twice God says to him, Why are you angry? Why are you angry? twice about this. And what's happening in Jonah's heart is that he is so angry, he can't enjoy the blessing of the Lord in these people's lives. And the other thing that is happening is Jonah realizes he has to be obedient to God. And even in his horrible attitude, even in the midst of him having the worst attitude we can possibly imagine... His obedience leads to fruit and fruitfulness. Even in the midst of his bad attitude, his following of the Lord, he understood what was going to happen. Even though he didn't like it, the Lord moves and does this. And I think this worm in this story is a symbol. I realize God sent it, but I also think it's a symbol of his own attitude and his own heart and his own unwillingness to rejoice in this situation. And it is a symbol of his attitude, and it is literally eating 
away the ability for him to sit and enjoy watching God move in a powerful way. Queen of Sheba. 1 Kings 10 tells us that Solomon, after he had, the Lord had come to him and said, what do you want? I'll give you anything. And he says he wants wisdom. And the Lord says, because you ask for wisdom, I'll give you all of these riches and power and authority and greater than any man. So he's in the season of enjoying all of this. And the word of this Solomon is spreading throughout the land. And there's a, a woman in the south who is the queen of Sheba, and, and most of believe that it's the area of Ethiopia, Eritrea, Yemen, that sort of area right there. Very, very old culture. In fact, um, a lot of geneticists will tell you that that's where like, we came from. Like, it's an old, old civilization there. So this queen hears... And I looked it up to see how long would it take to walk if just you or I decided we want to walk from Oxum, which is sort of the general area of that, walk all the way up to Jerusalem or the area where Solomon would have been. And it was 90 days. She brought with her four and a half tons of gold to give to this Solomon. She brought him spices and wood and fabrics and, and and all different kinds of things to, to bestow honor upon this king that she heard about. And so she goes and sits and hears about him. And the thing that, that we re- read in the story is that she hears his wisdom and she said, even the great things that I heard about you pale in comparison to what I'm hearing now. She, he answered all of her questions to such great satisfaction that she bestowed all of these gifts upon him. And the thing that I was thinking about in the midst of all of this is I thought, what was that journey like? I mean, think about what this woman did. It probably took her months and months, perhaps even close to a year, for her to get her caravan all the way up there. Think about all of the the risk that she ran taking all of this wealth up there. The risk of bandits, the risk of being attacked, the risk of, of, of disease and getting sick and being out in the elements and living on the road that entire time. The risk that she took to go and to sit and hear this man talk and to hear his wisdom is extraordinary. And I think there's something in that. I think Sheba is a, a symbol for us and a sign for us about something. It's a sign for us about how hungry are we to pursue. And what Jesus is saying is this woman who came to see someone lesser than me did all of this work, paid all of this price to hear his wisdom, and yet someone greater than Solomon is here. Then he goes on to seem to come completely and utterly out of the blue. This is Michelangelo's painting of the temptation of St. Anthony. If you've never read about St. Anthony, you should look up St. Anthony. St. Anthony is a fascinating character. Early, the original desert father, the original monk, and there are all these stories about him, about all the ways that he was tempted by the enemy. Tempted by the devil in many, many, many ways. Some of them, he, the, the stories even claim that there were physical manifestations offering him wealth, offering him sex, offering him food, offering him all of the pleasures of the world, and he resisted all of them through his prayer and his fasting times out in the desert. And so this is Michelangelo's painting um, of him. So Jesus tells us this strangely cryptic story, although if you think in terms of what Jesus has been teaching us, 
I think it was in the section that Josh taught last week, right? It's up a couple of sections before here where Jesus says, if you buy, how can you plunder a house unless you bind the strong man? And so what Jesus is saying is, look, if this unclean spirit has been driven out from someone and the house is swept and it's clean and it's tidy, but that's it, that spirit's going to wander around and come back and bring seven worse than itself. And the condition, first condition, the last condition will be worse than the first. Now, Jesus is teaching two things here. I think he's saying something specifically to the Pharisees. He's also teaching, I believe, on spiritual warfare. We do not have time, and probably a Sunday morning isn't the place in just a 30 or 40 minute teach to unpack sort of demonology and what does spiritual warfare look like. So for those of you that are like struggling with the idea that there, we do live in a spiritual world, it is really hard to read and or believe the Bible without believing that what we see here on earth is all that there is. There is a spiritual world that exists. Here's what I will tell you about that spiritual world so that you don't leave here confused or fearful. There is one ruler and authority over everything you see and everything that you don't see, and it is Jesus. And Jesus has every spiritual being that is not following him tethered to a leash, and it cannot do what he does not allow it to do. And so there is no reason ever to be fearful of the spiritual world or spiritual entities or spiritual realities in life. There is no reason to be fearful. Now, Jesus does do seven exorcisms in the Gospels, but it's only about a third of the miracles that he does. And so not even Jesus saw a demon under every rock or in every circumstance or in every situation. So I would say that not every head cold or not every uh, uh, glitch that happens in life is demonic. Are some? Yes, they, they are. But the good news is, is that you are in a body that, whose head is over all. And so there doesn't ever need to be any fear Hollywood loves to sensationalize it. Our literature throughout the ages from Dante's Inferno on loves to sensationalize what goes on in the demonic and the spiritual realm. And there is no reason to dwell on it. There's no reason to be impressed by it. There's no reason to be fearful of it. And so if you find yourself having fear about that, please come find someone to pray for you to settle fear because there never needs to be any fear about that realm. And that's all I will say about that. There probably is a time for us to teach on that at a deeper level. Um, and there are great resources, very practical, tangible resources. It's not spooky. It's not weird or strange. The, the Lord, the way he does things, is always very practical and very um, uh, useful uh, in the way that he teaches and instructs, even with regard to the spiritual realm. Okay. So what is Jesus saying? Why is he telling these three stories? Other than the obvious. No, I'm not going to share a sign with you. You guys are wicked. You're evil. I'm not going to share a sign. Not only that, Jonah's going to judge. Actually, the people of Nineveh are going to judge you. The queen of Sheba is going to judge you. And here's this random sort of parable-like story about what happens with unclean spirits. I think what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees is three things. I think the first thing that he is saying to them is... You are a people who has a prophet greater than Jonah here among you, and yet you will not change your ways. 
I am unfolding for you actually what is behind the law and the prophets, and yet you will not change your ways. You won't change how you think, and you will not change how you act. And that is why the Ninevites, who did when they heard the word of the Lord, change and repent and go another way, but you will not actually change your ways or how you operate. You won't listen to wisdom. Not only will you not change your ways, I'm giving you wisdom straight from heaven. I'm explaining to you what is going on behind the scenes. I'm explaining to you and revealing for you the heart of God, and yet you will not listen to the thing that I am trying to say and communicate to you. And because you won't change your ways, and because you won't listen, what is actually going to happen is the people that I am setting free have such bad leadership in place, they are not going to stay free. They're actually not going to stay free. I'm I'm delivering these people, and because you won't repent, and because you won't listen, it is going to be very challenging for the people that I am helping here, for the, the people who are listening to me to stay free in this situation. And I think that is a danger for us as well if we don't listen and repent, if we don't pursue after this wisdom, and if we don't do something when our freedom has come. And I think it's three things that are really the remedies of this that Jesus is looking for from their hearts. And the first one with changing the ways is obedience. Jonah did not think in alignment with God. He acted in alignment with God. He was angry with God the entire time he obeyed. He realized, I am not going to be able to run, so I I will go. I will go where you tell me to go, and I'll say what you tell me to say, but I'm not going to like it. And what the Lord was looking for from Jonah is obedience. Now, the Lord would work on his heart later, but the Lord was not looking and saying, Jonah's heart has to be in a perfect place for me to go and be able to use him and for it to bear fruit. He actually bore all the fruit that he wanted, and he brought the repentance to the Ninevites, even with Jonah in a horrible attitude. Now, is that what he wanted, was for Jonah to have a horrible attitude? No, he began working on that separately, but what he demanded from Jonah was obedience. And here's what I would say in that. If you're frustrated with the Lord, that is okay. What is not okay is to not walk the way he wants you to walk. It is better to follow with a bad attitude than to sit down and not do what he says, believing every word he told you. Jesus teaches us this over and over and over again. Hearing the word but not doing it. His brother actually says in, the, in James is like looking at your face in a mirror and forgetting what you looked like. We can't just believe. We are called to follow. We are called to follow him. If we are not acting in accordance to the ways that he he wants us to move, do not be surprised when a fish swallows you whole. Right? Don't, don't be surprised when that sort of sinkhole opens up underneath your life and everything seems to fall in it. It is important that we, from a primary place, are obedient to the Lord. He says it over and over and over again. I can't stress enough how important obedience is. 
I remember when my wife and I had reconciled. We had been separated. This was uh, 10, 11 years ago. We had been separated for a year. And we reconciled, and I lived back at home. And I had a consulting gig that she and I both knew that I shouldn't have, but it was the only money that was coming in. It was the only money that was coming in. I had gotten fired from my work. We had burned through all our 401k. We had racked up a bunch of debt because of bad decisions I was making. We had reconciled. I had moved home, and I had one consulting gig, and we knew I shouldn't have it. And I remember asking people over and over again, what do you think I should do? And and they kept saying the same thing. Maybe you just need to trust God. And so I remember going to Shelley and saying this, like, incredible. Like, this, this, this should be scripture. This is such, like, a profound prayer. This sounds like the stupidest thing I could ever do, but I'll do it. I didn't have any faith that it was smart. It seemed dumb to me. It did not seem wise. It did not seem like the Proverbsy thing to do, and yet it was very clear it was what the Lord wanted me to do. And I remember calling the guy on my trio. That's how long ago this was. Remember those trios had the little antenna on the keyboard on the bottom, right? I remember calling the guy and quitting and hanging up, and my email popped up on there, and there was an email from a friend. And I looked at the email from the friend, and he said, Hey, Sean, I don't know what you're doing for work right now, but I have a client that I think could use your help. And that client became a client that for the next 18 months, it took me about two or three hours in the morning to do that work, and it paid for everything. It literally was a godsend to allow my wife and I the time that we needed to sort of rebuild our marriage and rebuild our family and go through that situation. My mind was not aligned that this was wisdom, but I acted out of obedience, and the fruit was born out of it. I think that is an important thing for us to know, that even if your attitude or your heart feels cold or you feel like you're distant or he doesn't seem like he's listening to you, do not let that keep you from walking in his ways and following what he's telling you to do. When we won't listen to wisdom, I think the goal there is pursuit, right? This woman had incredible faith to pack up everything, all the things that she did, army, servants, wealth, property, all of these things, and take this trip hundreds of miles because she had heard and because she was hungry to hear something. The faith that she had to start the journey, but the faithfulness to keep going day after day after day after day. That pursuit. And what Jesus is saying is, Sheba went after this. This queen here came after this. That is what I want from you. I'm standing here in front of you, and all you're doing, all your pursuit is, is to pursue me, to ask me questions, to try and trap me. And I think what he is saying to us now is, you're running after so much other wisdom. You're running after so much other wisdom. And is there other wisdom in the world? Yes. All truth is God's truth. All wisdom is God's wisdom. There is a lot of place to get wisdom. But what the Lord wants is he wants you to pursue his heart in the way he is pursuing your heart. And there is something about that pursuit that protects us And again, if you don't feel it, 
If you don't feel, if you're not even hungry, if you need to pray to have the desire to have the desire, like God, I, I, I'm not even in a place where I want to pursue you. Please give me even the desire to pursue you, let alone the strength and the willingness to keep on. What he is saying is just obey, just keep pursuing, just keep pursuing. I will be found. He will be found. He will be found. And in place of this lack of freedom, when, that, when, when we come to the Lord and when he cleans up the inside, the goal of our faith is not what we don't do, it's what we do. It's what Jesus is teaching over and over and over again. You've got a list of things to not do. I'm telling you what you need to do. And what you need to do is that empty house that's swept and cleaned. You need to fill it. It should be filled. It should be filled with the Holy Spirit. It should be filled with my words. It should be filled with uh, mementos of experiences that you have had with God. It should be filled with people who you have led to me or have talked to about me or who are in your heart that you're interceding for. That house of yours should not be empty because that house was not meant to be empty. And if you do not fill it with my things, other things are going to crawl back in there. And if you just leave it empty and unguarded, your condition will be worse. If you've tasted once what I have, and you've sort of said, eh, not really good enough, not really what I want, your condition is going to end up being worse. That passionate pursuit and that filling of what's going on inside of us is so incredibly important. And if you've walked with the Lord for any period of time, I know you know what I'm talking about. Those seasons where it's dry, where it's just easier. Those seasons where what we've wanted God to do didn't happen. And to go all the way back to the signs, this is the thing that I think Jesus is asking us or that I want us to ask of ourselves, is what signs are we demanding of Jesus? Now, we might not literally be saying, hey, Jesus, I need a double rainbow on October 3rd, right outside my front door. Otherwise, I'm not going to believe you're real. But we could be saying, kind of like Gideon did, hey, can you make the fleece wet? Okay, now can you make it dry? Okay, now can you do this? Now can you do that? Now can you do this? Now can you do that? Now can you do this? Now can you do that? And it is okay to ask the Lord to show you or lead you, or guide you, or make very clear a difficult step, and I believe he is faithful to do that. But there are times when we are demanding signs of the Lord, and I think demanding signs for us might not look like exactly what we think it looks like. It could be, Lord, I tried this, and it didn't work out the way I thought it was going to, therefore I'm not going to try something like that again for you. That's demanding that God's a slot machine, that every time I stick in a quarter, something's going to come out. Or he's a candy machine, that every time I stick a quarter in, I'm going to twist it and something's going to come out. We're not in charge of the results. We're in charge of the obedience, and we're in charge of carrying our heart in a way before the Lord that is tender and keeps us in pursuit of him. It could be that the disappointment is part of his plan. It could be that the delay is part of his plan. 
It could be that allowing you to sit there in the middle of this is part of his plan because what he wants is strong, able men and women in his body. He doesn't want toddlers. If your 29-year-old is calling you, asking you what they should wear that morning, and it's not a special day, maybe you should question your parenting practices. Right? We don't want children who are reliant on us for everything. Hey, Dad, I'm in the drive-thru at Taco Bell. Should I get a crunchy taco or a soft taco? Yes, son, just ask your wife. She's probably in the car with you, right? And yet, how much of us are sort of there in our faith, right? How much of us are worried or concerned or we don't know? He says, the sheep will know my voice. We beat up on Gideon, but Gideon lived on the other side of the cross. Gideon didn't have what we have access to. What signs are we demanding of Jesus? Here's the next thing that I would ask. What signs are we missing from Jesus? Romans 1.20, one of my favorite verses in the entire scripture, says the invisible qualities of God are made evident in creation. It's not saying a pantheistic theology. It's not saying that God is in the tree. It's saying you can understand God by contemplating that tree. Have you looked at a tree lately and thought about it, thought about what a miracle it is? If you just thought about our earth, what a miracle it is on our earth, I would encourage you to study how exacting the planet that we live on, the tilt of the axis of the earth. We had the autumnal equinox. It's one of the times when we're actually perpendicular. We're actually at 90 degrees with relationship to the sun. And they say if you did the perfect time, you can actually stand an egg on its end, right, when it's right up because the balance of gravity is so perfect right? That 28 degrees that we're off on is just right. It's not too far. It's not too, it's not too close. The, the place where we are is so exacting. The mathematical odds of that happening are astronomical. And there is situation upon situation upon situation upon situation upon situation like that, that it makes it impossible to calculate the odds of earth being where it is of the sun being where it is and the moon being where it is and the way that we orbit around it and the conditions for life that exist here on earth. It means that our friends who believe that a God had nothing to do with that, whether you believe in the Big Bang and the earth is 13.9 billion years old and that's what Genesis 1-1 is, or you believe in a seven-day literal creation, I think it requires way more faith to think that all of this just happened. And I think we have evidence and signs of God all around us, all around us, all around us, all around us. And how many things has Jesus already set up for us that we're missing because we're not paying attention? And then the third thing I would ask, and this is probably the application, your life is a sign it doesn't matter if you want it to be or not. Your life is a sign. The decisions you make point towards a worldview to the people who live around you. Whether you're in ministry or not, and I would say 
you're in ministry of some kind. Every human on earth is in ministry of some kind. Some are in ministry promoting a worldview that has nothing to do with Jesus. Some of our actions promote a worldview that has nothing to do with Jesus. Some of my actions have promote a worldview that has nothing to do with Jesus. And this is the thing that the Holy Spirit has been on me about as I've been digging through this, is, Sean, what does your life point to? What does your life point at that is important, that is meaningful, and that is ultimately significant? And if you don't know where to start on that, I'd start with your calendar, and I'd start with your bank account, right? You hear us say that one a lot. It's because it's true. Right? Where we invest the hours of our day. And I would say even stronger, where we invest the best days, the best hours of our life. What are we doing and why are we doing it in those specific times in our lives? I might challenge you to do an audit on those. Just comb through. For those who aren't budget people, just do a little comb through and say, what does this say about me? What is my checking account say about me? And what does my calendar say about me? What is my conversation? What are my actions? What are my hobbies? What do I spend my time? I'm not picking on any of those. I'm asking what the Holy Spirit is asking of us is, what do they point to that is ultimately important and significant? It might be that you don't change any of the things that you're doing. You change why you're doing them, and you change the way that you're doing them. Why don't you stand? I'll pray for us as we enter back into worship. Thank you, Jesus, that you are ultimately the, you're the ultimate sign. You're the ultimate symbol of the heart of the Trinity towards us. The fact that you would take on and put on flesh, that you would be in a body, <clears throat> Subject yourself, <coughs> excuse me, subject yourself to a body forever, God, that you would live inside of this earth suit in an ongoing way, God, says something about your heart towards us, says something about your love for us, God. Lord, all of creation around us is singing out your praises, Lord. Maybe we need to spend more time out in it. Maybe as this transition time happens from, from summer into fall, Lord, as the beauty is revealed, God, as actually as the sun goes away, beauty is revealed in these leaves right as before they sort of fall off and we go into a season of dormance, God. Maybe there's something you're trying to speak to us through that, God. The scriptures, Lord, what an incredible sign of your faithfulness, your ability to coordinate men over ages and ages, protecting and scribing and rescribing and translating, God, so that we have this and can know your heart for us. And your spirit inside of us, bearing witness to this all, speaking to us, whispering to us the words that we need to hear from the Son and the Father. Thank you for all of these signs in our lives, Lord. Give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear, Lord. And Lord, as we move into the, a time of worship, 
of singing songs to you, singing images and pictures back to your heart. Lord, as we go in and we take this symbolic meal that represents your broken body and your blood shed for us, God. Bring it alive to us again, Lord. That is my prayer, Lord. Bring all of these signs and symbols alive to us, God. In Jesus' name, amen.